All right, our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 18, verses 9 through 15. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and we're so thankful that you're with us and celebrating with us on this Jazz Sunday. And we're continuing in our series in the book of Genesis this summer. And uh, as we prepare to look at this text that uh, Callan just read for us, I want to begin by praying and asking God to be at work uniquely right here and right now in and through his word. So let's do that. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who speaks and that life comes into existence, um, worlds and galaxies come into existence. Thank you that you have spoken to us through your word, and we pray that now by the power of your spirit you would speak to us afresh through your word this morning, um, right to where each one of us is at, in a way that only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as a kid, uh, I, was, I was really gullible as a kid. Uh, and, and some of us learn quicker than others. Uh, I, I don't think I was one of the quicker ones. Um, but if an older kid told me something, as the, I, just, I just believed it was true. And, and I still have a clear memory of, of being at scout camp. I have a picture of me when I was a, a kid here, I think, uh, at scout camp. Um, a little boy, you know, it's, like, it's a kid who looks pretty gullible, I think. Uh, I was actually, I think it was a couple years older at this, when this story happened. But it was my, one of my first times away at like a week-long summer camp for Boy Scouts. And, and every evening, you'd go to the commissary and you'd pick up this big box full of food. And you'd bring it back to the, the, the campsite where you were, were staying and then together as a a troop, you prepare your food. Well, the, the first evening that it was my turn to, to go to the commissary and pick up the big heavy food box, uh, I went there with another scout. We picked up the box and we, we trugged and lugged it all the way back um, to the camp and set it down. And, and the older scouts began to look through and kind of unpack it. Okay, here's the, the peaches and here's the, you know, all the stuff. And they kind of looked in the box and they said, you know what, Bill, we're missing something. They didn't, they didn't give you a left-handed smoke shifter. This is not a real thing, right? But I was like, oh, they didn't? Okay, uh, you got to go back to the commissary and ask them for a left-handed smoke shifter. I said, okay, I had my mission. So I went all the way back to the commissary, walked all the way back, got there to the loading dock and, and asked the, the guy in charge. I said, you know, we were supposed to have a left-handed smoke shifter. Um, it, it, didn't, wasn't, it wasn't in the box. And they said, huh, okay. You know, of course, they're in on the jokes, too. Uh, let's, well, let's see if we can't find one. And so they leave me there waiting for a while. They're rummaging around looking, come back. No, we don't, we don't have one uh, today. Maybe you can come back uh, tomorrow and, and get one, you know. 
Some of us learn quicker than others on these things. But in one way or another, right, we all learn. We all learn. We learn to doubt. We learn to question. We, we learn to be skeptical. We learn to look for the bias, right? We, we learn those phrases, everybody's got an angle. There's no such thing as a free lunch. It's, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And we, we learn to protect ourselves. We learn to, to not give away too much of ourselves, to not give away trust too quickly, to not give too much of ourselves for fear that we'll look foolish or gullible, and we, or just we just don't want to feel let down. We all learn. And not just with other people either. But it begins to transfer even into how we think about how we relate to God. And it's easier, safer, less risky not to pray big prayers. Just better to lower our expectations, uh, not expect too much, and, and then we won't get hurt. Then we won't be disappointed. Right? Cynicism. That's, that's what it is. It begins to creep in. And you know what? Cynicism, it feels smart. It often feels safe. It even feels sophisticated to sort of be the one who's able to sort of see things as they really are, to look from the outside and not be taken in. But left unchecked, cynicism, it slowly, subtly erodes our ability to believe our ability to trust, our ability to wonder, to feel joy. Right? We become cynical to protect ourselves from pain and disappointment, but in the process we slowly shut ourselves off from the possibility of hope and wonder and grace. And this morning we're confronted in Genesis chapter 18 with the question, is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? And of course, we know the right answer. Nothing's too hard for God. Right? We, we've been around the church. We know, we know that's what we're supposed to say. That we're supposed to believe nothing's too hard for God. Nothing's too hard for Him. But in the fog of confusion, in, in the pain of disappointment, in the weariness of waiting, it's so easy for cynicism to begin to creep in. A cynicism that, that laughs it hears God's promises and it says, ha, yeah, right. Funny. Like, that's going to happen. So the question for us this morning is, how do we take seriously the God of impossible promises in a world that is shot through with cynicism? How do we take seriously the God of impossible promises in a world that is shot through with cynicism? Because in those desperate places, the promises, they almost make it seem worse. Is anything too hard for God? Of course not. But then why does it seem like he's not doing anything? He's not acting. He's not bringing his promise to pass. I think you know, of course, this morning I'm not going to be able to answer that question fully, completely for you and your situation this morning. But I can say this, and that is that you are not alone in that place. You're not alone in that feeling. There's Abraham and Sarah who are the picture, they are the paradigm of what it means to trust God in the Old Testament, of what it means to trust God in spite of, of everything. 
they know exactly what it's like. I think as we look at their story, we can find hope for us in the midst of this. So turn to Genesis chapter 18 in one of the Pew Bibles if you haven't already, or pull it up on your phone in version. Take a look. I want to follow along with you in this as the text. And the whole tension of the story is driven by that question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything impossible for God? Is there anything that He can't do? And as we watch the story unfold, we're going to see three surprising strangers, two people good as dead, and one impossible, one laughable promise. So, three strangers, two people good as dead, one laughable promise. And first, we encounter the three surprising strangers. And the, the scene opens in Genesis 18, and it's the, the middle of the day, it's the heat of the day, um, it, it's, it's hot, right? And having, having spent uh, some time in the Phoenix desert uh, on vacation earlier this month, uh, you know, it's, it's clear, you don't go outside and do anything between like, you know, 10 a.m. And, and 5 p.m. It's just brutally hot. So you, if you're going to exercise, if you're going to get work done outside, you do it early in the morning, and then you go inside or get in the shade, hopefully into the A.C., uh, I don't think Abraham had that, but if you had the AC, you get inside and you just, and you rest. You can't be outside. And that's what we find Abraham doing in verse 1. He's finished his morning work, it's the heat of the day, and he's resting inside of his tent, the f- opening of the tent. Maybe he's even kind of dozing a little bit, just taking a rest. It's in the shade of these big oak trees where he and his family had camped with their tents for many years. This is his home. And the narrator tells us the Lord, Yahweh, the creator God of the universe who we saw back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, speak the world into existence, that he appears to Abraham. Which is how chapter 17, the previous chapter, also starts. It begins with the Lord appeared to Abraham. But there's something a little different happening here. In Genesis chapter 17, the the narrator doesn't tell us what it meant that God appeared to Abraham. Just that God appeared and he speaks and Abraham listens, but here in 18, we're told Abraham sees three strangers, three surprising strangers. And were they angels? Were they human messengers sent by God? Were they in some way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in physical form or a manifestation where we could see them visibly? We, we don't know exactly, but they're three surprising strangers. We do know it's clear that they speak for Yahweh, they speak for God, and they represent his presence. And immediately, Abraham's attention is is caught by these three strangers as he sees them. You can imagine he's sort of kind of nodding off in the tent door, and all of a sudden he kind of sees something on the horizon. He squints, rubs his eyes, and he sees these people coming. And he starts running toward them. Look at verse 5. Or verse 1, beginning uh, in chapter 18 through verse 5. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and then after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. 
Now, it's obvious in these verses that Abraham knows these strangers are someone really important because he runs to them. And this moment of running is really significant for two reasons. First of all, I mean, Abraham's about 100 years old at this point. I don't imagine he's doing a lot of running in his day-to-day life, right? This is not his normal exercise routine. But second, in this cultural context, a person of Abraham's social standing would not respond to guests by running to them unless he viewed them as people far greater than him. Abraham's a person of significant standing and wealth and has blessed him, and this is only someone who's much greater in his mind than him. Would he, would he run to them? And the hospitality that he shows to these strangers is, is extravagant, over the top, even for a culture that was sort of already over the top in the way that it expressed hospitality. And, and in this sort of this understated, kind of classic, under-promise, over-deliver moment, Abraham says, well, let me bring you a little water and just a morsel of bread. He kind of says, let me give you a snack. But he comes back with this feast, a veal feast, steaks. You can imagine he immediately sort of pokes his head in the tent after seeing the guests and, and says to Sarah, quick, start making bread. And then he goes out to his herd and he picks out the best young calf. And he has one of his other servants butcher it and then grill it. Verse 8, and then he took the curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set before them. And then he, Abraham, stood by them under a tree while they ate. So Abraham takes the posture of a servant in this moment. He doesn't even sit down as sort of the the master of the, the estate and eat with his guests. But rather he stands next to them while they're eating, and he plays the role of of waiter and and busboy to these guests. And as they're eating, the Lord speaks. Yahweh, the creator of the universe, is eating Abraham's food underneath this oak tree, and he speaks to Abraham, verse 10. And this is what he says, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door, tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now it's here in these verses that the yawning gap between what is the reality and what is the promise is revealed. And it's into that gap between promise and reality that cynicism so easily rushes in to fill. The gap between this time, next year Sarah will have a son, and the reality of the fact that these people have never been able to have a kid, and they are old, well past childbearing years. Huge gap. Cynicism is going to rush to fill. And the author is so clear about that gap, right? They are old. He goes out of his way, the author does, to make that clear. And not just old, but like old, old. They are advanced in years, they said. Not not just old, but, but well past menopausal old. These two people are as good as dead. Which sounds harsh, right? But, it, but, but it's exactly what the Apostle Paul describes them as in Romans chapter 4. That's what the Bible says about them. So, so in his commentary on the story, Paul, the Apostle in Romans in the New Testament writes this, Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. 
since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Sarah have a child with Abraham? Yeah, right. They are as good as dead. Sarah knows this. I mean, the Bible says so. <laughs> they are as good as dead. And Sarah's listening to all this from inside the tent. And what must she have been feeling when she overheard those words? Just think about it. What must she have felt? Me? Have a son? Yeah, right. I've, I've heard that before. Cynicism, tinged with anger, papering over decades of disappointment and shame. Because in this cultural moment, not only was childless a, a source of personal pain and disappointment, it was the loss of everything. It was a social stigma. But also, children were the sign of, of, of blessing that God had bestowed favor on you. Children were your retirement plan. They were your legacy. They were your insurance. They were the, the only way that you would be remembered and preserved was through your family. And Sarah had waited a really long time. I mean, she was probably a teenager when she got married. And, you know, maybe those first few months of, of marriage, she didn't get pregnant. She probably didn't think too much of it, right? Sometimes these things take some time. But when those months stretched into years, those years stretched into decades, how must she have felt? And some of you here this morning, you don't have to imagine. You've walked that journey. You're walking that journey. She had spent decades, each month hoping, each month adding another layer of pain, another layer of disappointment. But then when she's already pretty old, God shows up, appears to Abraham, makes a great promise in Genesis chapter 12 that a great nation would come from this couple. And then God reiterates that promise again in Genesis 15 and again in Genesis 17. Hope rose. Maybe after all we will have a child and then fell again and again. Because at this point in the story in Genesis chapter 18, it has been 24 years since God first made the promise that they would have a son back in Genesis chapter 12. 24 years of waiting. Think about that. 24 years. What were you doing 24 years ago? I mean, some of you weren't even born 24 years ago. Uh, 24 years ago, I was back at Boy Scout camp trying to find a left-handed smoke shifter. That's what I was doing 24 years ago. It's a long time. You've got to think that Sarah has had enough. You know, you keep saying that, God. You keep saying that, but it sure seems like you've forgotten about me. This brings us to our first lesson from the text this morning, that if you are going to take the God of impossible promises seriously, if you're going to take him seriously in a world of cynicism, you're going to have to be prepared to feel forgotten at times. If you're going to take God seriously, you will feel forgotten. That's a hard thing to say, I know. 
But some of you are there right now. You are in the midst of that feeling forgotten. Maybe it was all you could do to get out of the car and walk in to this place this morning. You're longing for a child, for a better job, from relief for pain that just does not seem to go away, for healing in a marriage or a relationship that just seems like it's going nowhere, to escape depression that just continues to cling on no matter what you seem to do. And to make it all worse, you've prayed. You've prayed hard. You've asked other people to pray. You've asked your pastors to pray for you. And nothing. You feel forgotten. And let me assure you, though, this morning that you are in good company. It was Abraham and Sarah felt forgotten. So did Joseph and Leah, Moses, David, Hannah, Esther, Job, Paul, even Jesus. Just about every character in this book at one point or another has felt forgotten by God. I think that's actually one of the hardest parts of this life of faith is this tension between what we believe about God, what He has promised, what He has declared to be true, and that our experience of Him, our reality of what often feels like such distance and isolation and an action on, on Him to, to do something. And it's in those spaces, in those gaps between God's promises and the fulfillment of them, between His promises and our expectations and our hopes, it's in that gap that cynicism, faith-killing cynicism, can begin to flourish and thrive. But if in those spaces we can remind ourselves that we're not alone in the waiting, if we can have the expectation that there will inevitably be times when we feel forgotten, then we can cling on to the stories of those in this book, the stories of others in the faith who have gone before us, who have walked the same path, who somehow managed to hold on to hope. We can keep believing that nothing is too hard God. Because he isn't about instant gratification. He isn't about moving on timetables that that we're often comfortable with. So often in the Bible, it's so clear that God is going to take his time in working out his plan. And it often takes so much longer than we would have expected or hoped. So we've met the three surprising strangers. We've encountered two people who are as good as dead. And next we're confronted with the one laughable promise. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. After 24 years of waiting, God is now given a timeline of one year and it's laughable because the author has gone out of his way already in the, in the verses to show that there is no reason, humanly speaking, that we can believe that this is going to happen. Old, advanced in years, postmenopausal Sarah, this is not happening. A perpetually infertile couple now well beyond childbearing years. It's like, God, this is getting ridiculous. Stop playing. 
I mean, they laugh not with joy, but with cynicism. God, are you serious? Quit messing around. And, and, you know, it's not just Sarah who laughs either, because, you know, Abraham laughed too. Back in Genesis chapter 17, the previous chapter, the last time that this promise was reiterated again, (laughs) verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then here in, in chapter 18, listening from inside the tent, Sarah laughs too. Can you blame her? So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord Abraham is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. I love this. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You did laugh, Sarah. This worn out, good as dead couple hears God's promise and laughs. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, God. Which brings us to our next observation. If you are going to take the God of impossible promises seriously in this world of cynicism, you will laugh. And not always, and not always in a good way. Because there is the joy of laughter, this laughter of excitement, of pleasure, of joy, of delight. And there is the laughter of, yeah, right. Are you kidding me? I wasn't born yesterday. You think I'm that gullible? And as we live between the gap of our expectations and reality, of our hopes and the actual experience, cynicism will start to grow. And that cynicism left unchecked will erode our faith. It will undermine our hope. It will diminish and shrink our love. Uh, About a decade ago, I read a book called The Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's one of the most insightful, practical, just useful books on prayer that I've ever read. I've, I've gone back to it again and again. And one of the most helpful and challenging parts of the book actually wasn't a section on here's sort of how to keep a prayer journal or here's some like ways to remember to pray for people. It was actually a chapter on what it was the obstacles to prayer. And one of the things he points out is one of the biggest obstacles to prayer is cynicism. I said, wow, it opened up a new category for me. In fact, now I've come to see my prayer life as actually is a pretty clear gauge of the level of cynicism that's operating in my own heart, in my own life. How willing am I willing, how, how, how willing am I to pray? How big am I willing to ask? How much faith do I come to God with? Listen to what Paul Miller writes. He says, cynicism kills hope. The world of the cynic is fixed and immovable. 
The cynic believes that we are swept along by forces greater than we are. Dreaming feels like so much foolishness. Risk becomes intolerable. Prayer feels pointless as if we are talking to the wind. Why set ourselves and God up for failure? And many of us believe in the Christian hope, he says, of ultimate redemption, but we breathe the cynical spirit of our age and we miss the heart of God. Oh, how I have felt that in my own life. That sense of why set myself up and God up for failure. It's easier just not to pray or just to sort of pray small, to not, or pray vague enough that, you know, sort of God just, you know, your will be done and I'm not going to ask for anything specific because then you won't let me down and I won't be let down when it doesn't come to pass. But here's the thing with this. Once you begin to know the voice of cynicism, once you kind of begin to recognize in your own mind that internal dialogue of that, why why pray? Why let yourself down? Why let God down? That can actually become a trigger. It can become a cue to respond in prayer in those moments. Because I've begun to learn when I hear that voice ringing in my head, those are the moments when I need to press into prayer, to confess even, just to say, God, like, I feel really cynical right now. I feel like I can't pray or ask of you in faith. I just, I don't, I just don't see it. I'm having a hard time believing. And once you're able to recognize that cynicism, it can actually turn into an opportunity to pray. And prayer is always a subversive act. It's especially so with cynicism. And even that turning and confessing, that repenting of God, like, I just even, I don't want to pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray in this. I don't have faith in this moment. Even that turning to God in those moments and confessing that is an act of faith. It is an act of turning away from unbelief. Which is why Paul is able to write of Abraham and Sarah in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Did they laugh? Yes. Did they struggle? Yes. Did they persist anyway? Yes. If you're going to take God seriously, there will be times when his promises seem laughable. But the question is, will we let those moments drive us into a place of deeper dependence and hope and trust, or will we shrink back into cynicism and isolation This is our third lesson. If you're going to take the God of the impossible promise seriously, if you're going to take him seriously in a world that is just rife with cynicism, then you have to believe that one day, somehow, you will give birth to joy. If you're going to take God seriously, that you will give birth to joy. Because if you persist in faith, hope, and love, the laughter of cynicism will one day give way to the laughter of delight. And God's sense of humor in this moment is just, it's, it's amazing. It's a sense of humor and delight. Literally, this happens for Abraham and Sarah. A year later, they do have a son. Finally, after all of those decades of waiting, they have a son. And what do they name him? 
Isaac. God tells them to name him Isaac, which means laughter. Every time now, for the rest of their lives, when they call his name, laughter, come on in, it's time for dinner. Hey, have you met our son? This is laughter. They are reminded again, a constant reminder of both their struggle to believe and God's faithfulness to his impossible promise, despite their struggles, despite their wavering, despite all of it, that he was faithful. I think that's actually the real miracle in the midst of the story, that God is faithful to them anyway. And somehow they kept believing. And holding her son, Sarah said, God who has brought me laughter. God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Is anything, is anything too hard for God? Friends, the life of faith is not a life of gullible naivete. Nor does living the life of faith mean that we will always get what we hope for and long for in this moment. Because Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane, is it possible for the cup of death to be taken from me? And the answer was no. And it was not because he didn't have enough faith. For many of us, we may never see or may only see in a tiny part our hopes, our longings, our dreams come to pass in this life. But we do not lose heart because we do not give in to cynicism. Why? Because we have the impossible promise that this life is not the end. The life of faith in the God of impossible promise is a life of trust in the God who raised Jesus from the dead and who has promised to do the same for you and for me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes these words. He says, For we know that the one who raised Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Do you believe that today, church? Do you believe that? It's that kind of a promise that can kill soul-crushing cynicism. It's the only promise that can do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your very great promise of hope of resurrection, hope of new life. Would you grant us afresh the faith, the grace to believe in a world that is shot through with cynicism? Would you make us a people who are marked by faith, hope, and love. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.